This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is part three of our ongoing series, Erotic 80s. I'm getting a little fed up at sexually emancipated ladies being referred to as broads. I'm not doing this because somebody's making me do it. You're a strange girl being a naughty boy. Last year he was discovered making amateur videos of his own sex robbers. Today's episode is about 1980. On the one hand, if you're just counting by the occurrence of certain types of imagery that previously would have been censored out of movies publicly screened for money, this was the most permissive moment in the history of commercial filmed entertainment to that point. On the other hand, there was a building fear that a crackdown was coming. Jimmy Carter was unpopular enough by the end of his term that it seemed likely that a Republican would be replacing him. And the last elected Republican president, Richard Nixon, had pushed a censorship agenda in defiance of both porno-chic popular culture and the scientific results produced by a federally funded commission on pornography which showed there was no evidence of a correlation between consumption of explicit images and antisocial or criminal behavior. Four conservative Supreme Court justices had been appointed during Nixon's term, an impact which obviously lasted long beyond Watergate. Plus, after Nixon left office, the anti-pornography and anti-sex activism of otherwise left-leaning feminists had only picked up steam. Some arguments that came out of this movement equated all heterosexual sex with the abuse of women and sought to ban all depictions of such from public spaces where women could be exposed to them unawares. They asked for softcore magazines like Playboy to be removed from newsstands and bookstores, campaigned against sexual imagery on album covers, 
and protested Hollywood sex scenes that intertwined sex with violence. Most of the time, what these groups were asking for was not for stories about sexual violence to be depicted more sensitively or for porn to only be sold to adults. They wanted these things out of the public space. In their January 1980 issue, which hit stands just before the end of 1979, Playboy published a letter from a reader named William Kirshner of Los Angeles, California. I hope my fears are unfounded, Kirshner wrote, but I've been watching and hearing enough outcry for censorship to worry me. Censorship of a kind that would virtually remove sex from any publication or motion picture. I'm not concerned that it would ever be voted in by the people. I do fear that politicians and the current Supreme Court, Nixon's revenge, will, if they can, dismantle the First Amendment and attempt more and more to dictate what adults may read and see. I would like to see some demonstrations in behalf of our constitutional rights before the modern-day Anthony Comstock succeed in imposing their tastes on the entire country. It was clearly in Playboy's best interests to publish such a letter. That same issue of the magazine debuted the first in a series of three attacks on anti-porn feminists that the magazine would publish over the course of the year, all of which were cannily argued to make readers suspicious of all feminists as working to affect, quote, the denial of male sexuality and to equate attacks on violent pornography with attacks on comparatively innocent expressions of heterosexuality. Evidently, Playboy was on an offense campaign to quiet this feminist movement in defense of their own business. What they didn't know yet was that Hollywood was about to start fighting this crusade for them by releasing a wave of films that not only combined sex with violence in incredibly alluring ways, but which also changed the cultural conversation. Attention was diverted away from the idea that women needed to be protected from media that could indirectly or directly inflict trauma, and was placed instead on the idea that women could, and wanted to, gain pleasure from looking at sexual imagery. That shift happened in part because Hollywood started making movies in which young, hot guys were given the same kind of treatment that had previously been reserved for female starlets. A brief note about that letter in Playboy. It was likely a dispatch from a very relevant margin. IMDb has a profile for a William Kirshner with the same spelling as the letter writer who appeared in a number of movies straddling the line between mainstream Hollywood and hardcore pornography. From Melvin Van Peebles' Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song to the John Holmes flick The Danish Connection. He played characters with names like Professor Master Betty and Werner Von Sperm in R-rated sexploitation comedies. In one film directed by 70s porno legend Carlos Tobolina, Kirshner appeared under the credit Bill K, spelled K-A-Y-E. In what I'm sure is a complete coincidence, 
Within two months after this letter was printed, a film hit commercial cinemas in which the lead character also had the last name K, K K-A-Y-E. And this film truly tested the limits of motion picture censorship circa 1980 by including casual, male, full frontal nudity and still earning an R rating. It wasn't the only film of 1980 to feature its male star bearing all to become a major phenomena. Another was The Blue Lagoon, which we'll talk about more in the coming weeks. But today's episode is about American Gigolo. In his recent book, The 90s, Chuck Klosterman declares that the 70s ended and the 80s began with American Gigolo's opening credits. The movie does feel like the embodiment of what some would call a vibe shift. It is a fascinating prism through which we can and will talk about consumerism as sexuality and vice versa, the influence of gay culture on hedonistic straight nightlife and the anxiety straight men felt about that influence, and Richard Gere's embrace by the media as the ideal hunky cover boy through which to sell the idea that women could, quote unquote, have sex like men and thereby de-emphasize and maybe even prevent actual male-female equality where it mattered. Join us, won't you, for episode three of Erotic 80s. American Gigolo's poster was shot by actor-turned-artist Paul Jasmine, under the supervision of director Paul Schrader, who had taken over the film's marketing campaign himself after deeming Paramount's efforts to be misguided. The image created by the two Pauls featured the film star Richard Gere, dressed in Armani separates, backed into a corner by a window, the Venetian blinds casting dark and light shadows on his brooding face. It's not a replica of a scene in the film, but it does echo a scene in which Gear gets out of bed and stands by a similar window, although in the movie, he's naked. The actor's actual penis on display. The fully dressed Gear was alluring enough to lure audiences to see the film, and those audiences were then rewarded with the casual full frontal. This would still be an anomaly in a movie in 2022. In 1980, it felt like it could be the further cracking open of the door opened eight years earlier by Last Tango in Paris, a film which indeed heavily influenced American Gigolo. The images of Gere's disrobed body are no more or less alluring than the clothes he carefully selects or the Mercedes he drives like a fetish object through a city that seamlessly transitions from luxe to seedy and back again. An escort to rich, sex-starved, and mostly older women, when asked to repeat a trick, Gears Julian declines, saying, I don't like playing the same numbers too often. They get possessive. I can't be possessed. But he, and the movie, are obsessed with his possessions. The film's true passion is for the trappings of lifestyle. 
Its first image, in that credit sequence that Klosterman pegged as so pivotal, is of the Mercedes logo, and within two cuts, we're drinking in the sparkling Pacific Ocean. The entire fantasy of a moneyed life in Los Angeles, circa 1980, boiled down to two shots. The first time we see Julian with a date, we don't see them have sex, we see them shopping. What do women want? How does Julian fulfill their fantasies? There are some things he can only do in a hotel room, but there are a few things he can do for them out in the open, on Rodeo Drive. Later, there's a scene in which Julian is laying out his clothes, trying to decide exactly which suit and which shade of beige which knit Missoni tie goes with. Is this a reference to The Great Gatsby? Up to this point, the quintessential American image of a man showing off his wardrobe to help sell his class-passing facade? Or is this Julian's real work, his real artistry, designing the fantasy? Maybe that could apply to Gatsby, too. All I know is that at one point we see a shirtless gear doing a cokey little strut from the perspective of his clothes laying on the bed, which would also be the perspective of a partner lying there looking up at the man on top of them. I once watched this film on an airplane, and when this scene came on, I got paranoid that the flight attendant would think I was watching porn. Everything in this movie is designed to make you want to touch it. And that's what Julian does to himself, too. The architect of Gigolo's aesthetic was designer Ferdinando Scarfiati, who Schrader had intentionally sought out to help him reframe American Gigolo's Los Angeles through an Italian lens. Scarfiati had worked with Bernardo Bertolucci on Last Tango in Paris and The Conformist. He'd go on to design Brian De Palma's Scarface and win an Oscar for The Last Emperor. The Conformist had been a formative influence on Schrader, who once said, quote, You looked at Bertolucci. It was like he just took Godard and Antonioni, put them in bed together, held a gun to their heads and said, You guys fuck or I'll shoot you. Schrader was ahead of the curve on pegging the Italian aesthetic as a new uniform for a future that had already arrived. In September 1979, after American Gigolo was filmed but before it was released, the cover of GQ magazine pegged something they called global chic as the look of the moment, which involved a new, low-slung, double-breasted silhouette with notched lapels and a bit of shaping at the waist. Newsweek would later call this look an almost paradistic masculine silhouette, and it stuck around for much of the decade. The chic was global because it involved a mix of American and European, largely Italian, designers, made possible by faster international travel and made suitable by quote-unquote faster lifestyles. The fashion spreads and lifestyle advice inside the magazine could have been taken straight from American Gigolo, in which Julian dresses for success in Armani. The movie, the character, and the wardrobe are all selling sex, and a very specific type of sex, charged by the buzz of consumerism, the buzz of a fast car, 
the buzz of cocaine. It's all exhilaration, warmly lit, but icy to the touch. Julian cruises for new clients at the Beverly Hills Hotel, its restaurant rendered as a pink velvet womb. He overhears Lauren Hutton's Michelle speaking French and makes his move. Just one thing. Why did you come on to me? Like I said, I made a mistake. I heard you speaking French. Often in these big hotels, you you run into women from foreign countries who may need a translator or a guide. And they hire you? Yes. How many uh, languages do you speak? Five or six. Plus the uh, international language. That's right. He inspires a kind of sad desperation in this beautiful woman. I found out who you were, where you live. I came here in the middle of the night. I wanted to know what it would be like to fuck you. I brought money. By way of accepting her proposition, he takes her blood-red Bottega Veneta clutch out of her hands, the first sign that she'll give up everything for him. The story can only end with both Julian and Michelle losing everything. Julian's sexuality is ambiguous, and by that I mean it truly feels like it could be two things at once. We see that he has sex with women for money, and we hear him say he doesn't want to do gay stuff anymore, which means he's done it before. And yet he also says of his apartment, women don't come here which could be read as meaning that it's the staging area for his work, not his workplace. But it could also mean that if he has a private sex life, it doesn't involve women. Why does he get involved with Lauren Hudden's Michelle? Is he working her? Or does their relationship transcend sex, which seems to be suggested by the film's last image of quasi-biblical grace and sacrifice? American Gigolo would prove, with time, to be incredibly influential. But in its initial release, it was savaged by critics, who disagreed as to who should be offended by the movie. The Hollywood reporter's Arthur Knight called Schrader, quote, the most misogynist of men. In his enchanted eyes, every woman is hungry only for sex, the kinkier, the better. He notes that the scenario is borrowed from gangster films. But who are we rooting for in American Gigolo? A male prostitute? I think it's always frustrating for an audience to look at a picture in which there is no one to identify with, no one to care about." End quote. It was taken as a given that while you might find some reason to identify with a movie gangster, no one could identify with a movie prostitute. He also claims gear, quote, appears reduced and less handsome than his more recent outings. Which makes me wonder if he wandered into the wrong Richard Gere film. Variety, too, found it difficult to care about Julian, 
but assigned that difficulty not to his profession, but to the moral and emotional ambivalence with which it is portrayed. In his New York Times review, Vincent Canby complained that American Gigolo, quote, contains something to offend almost everyone, except possibly the lunatic fringe of the women's liberation movement. Circa 1980, the lunatic fringe of feminism was anti-heterosexual sex. And I guess Canby is reading the film as a validation of someone like Andrea Dworkin's arguments that there is no reforming the power imbalance of male-on-female intercourse, in that the movie depicts women who buy their way out of that paradigm by hiring a professional whose only interest is in ensuring their pleasure and whose whole sense of worth is wrapped up in personal discipline and self-sacrifice. It is, as Schrader put it, the story of a character whose life is predicated on not surrendering to women, but on serving them. But it's pretty clear that Schrader, a former film critic who had been mentored by last tango champion Pauline Kael, didn't see this as a movie for fringe feminists or a film about women at all, which makes the kind of equal opportunity sensuality of the finished product all the more remarkable. Instead, Schrader was making a movie about his own repressed sexual confusion. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In one interview designed to promote American Gigolo, Schrader was asked if he, like Julian, liked to, quote, cruise around in your car in slow motion through the sleazy sides of town. Schrader responded, that's true, I do like to do that. And it's one of the things you can't do in New York. The beauty of LA is that you drift, you float, and you create this music and you watch. March 1980, the same month that Bo Derek makes her debut on the cover of Playboy, American Gigolo is out in theaters. Despite the dismissive reviews, it's making money. A feat variety credits to the uniquely modern and seductive marketing campaign overseen by Schrader. A lot of people who go to California and plan on staying get beat by it, Schrader tells his breakfast guest, a hangover countering bullshot in front of him. So you have to figure out a way to get what you want out of it, and you will get what you want. It's not a confrontational situation. It's a matter of understanding how the system works. And if you understand it enough, you can make it work for you. There are no Emily Dickinsons in the cinema. You have to be involved in the commercial struggle. This breakfast took place in New York, to which Schrader fled in early 1980 to teach and also take courses at Columbia. He's talking to a Warhol superstar named Tinkerbell, who first met Schrader at Studio 54. Most of the negative reviews of American Gigolo either complain that the movie kept the audience too distant from the inner life of its protagonist, a deliberately withholding man who tells women that there's nothing more to learn about him than what they can find out in bed, 
or else insisted that only a creep would identify with a male prostitute anyway. By then, Paul Schrader, the writer of Taxi Driver, was accustomed to being thought of as a creep. In interviews over the past 42 years, he's been extremely transparent about the ways in which American Gigolo was autobiographical. He tells Tinkerbell that on the first day of his screenwriting class at Columbia, he asked his students to write down the two most pressing problems in their own lives. The next week, he asked them to come back with three metaphors for each problem. The gigolo, like the taxi driver, are metaphors for other things, real problems faced and felt by their screenwriter. When Gear told him that he wanted to meet real gigolos, Schrader says he told him the same thing he told De Niro when he wanted to interview taxi drivers. Don't let these guys fool you. The way they talk and the way they act is interesting, but don't try to be them. You don't come from them. You come from me. How is American Gigolo the Paul Schrader story? In Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, Peter Biskind writes that as far back as his early 20s, quote, Schrader was a proponent of what he called fucking up. That is, forming attachments to those above him in the food chain. Beverly Walker, a publicist and sometime Schrader girlfriend, told Biskind, What I couldn't stand about him was that he used me so relentlessly. I knew a lot of people who were very successful. He didn't know any of them and wanted to meet them. Then he would try to exclude me and develop his own relationships with them so he could forward his own career. Schrader was thus allegedly a practitioner of social climbing through sex. Later, he'd say that the American gigolo was meant to evoke Horatio Alger. But there's an insecurity to a self-made man, an instability. As Gear put it, Julian's always improving himself, reading a book to learn another language or just reading the Sotheby's catalog. He added, quote, now that he's risen above the lizards, he'll still never have the blue blood of the people he runs with. Talking to Tinkerbell, Schrader uses the term hustling more than once to describe his life in Hollywood, trying to get movies made. He'd use it with Biskind years later, too. The problem that Schrader was turning into metaphor in American Gigolo was, as he put it, the problem of not being able to accept another person's love. Being unable to receive, the gigolo has set himself up so he can only give. In discussing his previous film, Hardcore, Schrader said, quote, Because I didn't participate in the sexual liberation of the 60s, though I participated in the political liberation and the drug liberation, my sexual freedom took this rather aberrant form of an obsession with people who lived the forbidden life. I came to Hollywood as an overweight kid from the Midwest who always wore undershirts and too many clothes. Gradually, I succumbed to the physical culture of Los Angeles, which I think is one of the best things the place ever did for me. I lost a lot of weight and I became interested in presenting the proper LA image. This is a business based on looks and style. And if you don't have either of those things, it's just an encumbrance in trying to sell yourself. He found his Midwestern sexual repression bumping up against not just the, in some ways, benevolent superficiality of Los Angeles, 
but also a sexual fluidity made possible by disco and drugs. In an article about nightlife in 1979 going into 1980, Playboy pegged sexual ambiguity as the defining trend of the moment. In Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, producer Howard Rosenman described, quote, a kind of heady period where for the first time in American culture, gay choices about music, clothes, design were considered to be the future. This was the cutting edge, but it was so exciting and gorgeous and glamorous that everybody knew it was leading toward an abyss. And that was attractive in and of itself. There was a mystic wildness about the partying, the music, the drugs, the clothes, the free sexuality, the interchange of partners, the constant fucking of boys, girls. It was so shocking and exhilarating. People like Schrader were attracted to it because they understood there was something religious in the intertwining of sex, death, and ecstasy. When Schrader first showed up in Malibu in the early 70s and started hanging out with Brian De Palma and Martin Scorsese and that crew, many thought Schrader was in love with John Milius, the He-Man screenwriter who was the visual model for John Goodman's character in The Big Lebowski. If it wasn't love, Schrader seemed to at least want to emulate Milius's Hemingway-esque, larger-than-life, self-destructive masculinity. Of course, Hemingway's masculinity was overdone in part because of his uneasiness about the slipperiness of his own gender and sexuality. Schrader was the same. Schrader was this character who had fallen from his Calvinist grace and was really enjoying his time in hell, sampling every part of it, Milius said. He loved perversion, but all sexuality in some way was a failure for him. Schrader and Milius went shopping together for guns. Schrader kept a loaded pistol on his bedside table. He had fantasies of shooting himself in the head. It was out of that kind of repression that Schrader later found a kind of liberation in going to gay clubs, dancing shirtless with other men and touching and hugging them, and through those experiences, conquering an intense fear of intimacy. I couldn't get there through the heterosexual door, he said. So I went through the other door and came back around. That's from an interview published in 1990. More recently, in 2020, in an oral history of American Gigolo, photographer Paul Jasmine remembered a night he spent in a hot tub with a coked-up Schrader who was playing with a gun. He held it to his head and pulled the trigger. When he handed the gun to Jasmine, Jasmine got out of the tub. The whole scene, the hot tub, the revolver, was very closety, Jasmine remembered. Schrader almost agreed, but not quite, saying, I was never really threatened by the homosexual thing because I always knew that it wasn't going to happen. The closest it ever came to happening was with Paul Jasmine, and it almost happened but it still didn't happen. It might be hard today to understand why this was all such a big deal. Schrader was drawn to gay men, but as a man who habitually applied metaphors to everything going on in his personal life, the metaphor he chose for experimenting with men sexually was a game of Russian roulette, 
And this was a couple of years before the AIDS crisis. There's no question that there was something in the air in the late 70s and early 80s, a level of anxiety amongst straight men about gay men and the queering of popular culture and traditionally sexually segregated spaces like nightclubs through disco. Some men dealt with their anxiety head on, albeit with gun in hand, while others repressed it and or let it fester into hate. After the break, we'll talk about this backlash moment and how, whether it wants to or not, American Gigolo reflects it, as do two other movies released in 1980 by directors of Schrader's generation. Despite what appear to have been Schrader's intentions, American Gigolo was read by some as homophobic, given that the ultimate villain is a queer black pimp played by Bill Duke, whose long resume would later include directing films like Deep Cover and Sister Act 2. Schrader would later acknowledge that if he were to make the film 40 years later, he'd balance the film's sexuality differently. Quote, Julian was not as gay as he would be today. At the time, we thought we were being brave, promoting this androgynous male entitlement. Now I look back and we were being cowardly. It should have been much more gay. Then again, it probably got made because Julian pretends not to be gay. And yet, Schrader has also said that one of the reasons why John Travolta dropped out of the film at the last minute, creating the opening that would cement Richard Gere as a star, had to do with Travolta's fear about his own sexuality. Quote, He was very much in the closet at that time and started to realize that a lot of the people involved in the film were gay and that it'd be a gay take on the material. End quote. For what it's worth, according to a Hollywood Reporter story from January 1979, the official reason Travolta left the movie was to grieve the recent death of his mother. And the unofficial reason was that he was worried that the role in Gigolo was too similar to the older woman romancing hustler he had just played in Moment to Moment, a huge flop that I actually think is good. Anyway, Schrader essentially outed Travolta by talking about his status in the closet as past tense. I must acknowledge that Travolta has always presented himself to the public as straight. That said, speaking generally, it is easy to understand how a closeted gay male movie star in the late 70s and early 80s would want to stay in the closet and not star in a film that might inspire people to ask too many questions about their private life. By late 1979, a decade after Stonewall, gayness was more visible in American pop culture than ever before. But that very visibility was starting to inspire an equally tangible homophobic backlash. The January 1980 issue of Playboy, the same one that included the aforementioned trend item on sexual ambiguity in nightlife, featured a reported story by journalist Nora Gallagher called The San Francisco Experience about the growing hate amongst that city's straight population directed at its gay population. 
The story begins on the night of May 21st, 1979, one day before what would have been the 49th birthday of Harvey Milk, had he not been assassinated by his fellow City Board of Supervisors member, Dan White, six months earlier. Earlier that day, White had been convicted of voluntary manslaughter, which many felt was a far too lenient sentence for the politically motivated murder of Milk and Mayor George Moscone. Protesters at City Hall that night, many of them gay men, broke windows and threw things at the hundreds of city police sent to quell the disturbance. This would become known as the White Night Riots, and Harry Britt, Milk's replacement on the Board of Supervisors, predicted it would change how the gay community was perceived. Now, the society is going to have to deal with us, Britt said, not as nice little fairies who have hairdressing salons, but as people capable of violence. The gist of Gallagher's story is that straight people who were more or less fine living in the same community without gay people in the 10 years after Stonewall began to feel differently after Harvey Milk. They began to feel as though gay rights had gone too far. Gallagher proceeds to interview some straight men who seem to think if they complain about the militancy of gay people, that will be more relatable than classic homophobia. One straight married man who won't let her use his real name describes the sense of menace he feels living in the Castro neighborhood, which became the center of gay life in San Francisco over the previous decade. Another man tells her, they should be a little more discreet and stop dangling it in our faces. I feel they're losing as opposed to winning by doing that. That same man tells Gallagher that, as a straight man in San Francisco, he now feels like a minority, and he doesn't like it. Quote, I sort of feel as though I'm running out of people who are like me. This feels like what we're living through right now with Karen Turfs and panic over critical race theory. When once dominant populations fear they're on the verge of being marginalized, or sometimes the moment they perceive that the culture has already left them behind, they lash out desperately to try to rewind the clock and restore an imagined past in which they were in uncontested control. As part of her research, Gallagher had a gay male friend help her dress in drag so she could visit a glory hole club incognito an experience which would be echoed in certain ways in another film released in 1980, William Friedkin's Cruising, in which a straight cop played by Al Pacino goes undercover to investigate murders in New York's leather scene. One of Gallagher's anonymous interview subjects suggests that everything he actually knows about gay men, he learned from watching the Phil Donahue show probably not an uncommon experience for some straights at the time, and one echoed in yet another 1980 release, Brian De Palma's Dressed to Kill. De Palma and Schrader were friends. Schrader claimed credit for taking De Palma to see Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo for the first time, which is very funny. But it's hard to imagine two films with as different approaches to sexuality as American Gigolo and Dressed to Kill even though both deal with surveillance, sex work, and secret lives. 
as does cruising for that matter. All of these movies, made by straight directors, dealing in one way or another with straight male anxiety about queerness, have been interpreted as homophobic by some and reclaimed by others as good for the gays. I think American Gigolo, which deals with this panic in the most diffuse manner, is the most successful and least offensive. But I would think that, as a middle-aged straight woman, because it's the only one of the three that considers the middle-aged straight female gaze. For American Gigolo to suggest that Julian Kay's sexuality was fluid, even if just for pay, was a lot for that moment, especially since the movie wants you to not just care about him, but ultimately care about his soul on a spiritual level. And playing that role would mark Richard Gere's sexuality as a matter of debate for decades to come. Nobody seemed sure whether or not Richard Gere was going to happen until American Gigolo. His first notable film role had been three years earlier in Looking for Mr. Goodbar, a sensationalist take on single bar culture starring Diane Keaton as a school teacher who picks up men in bars at night. Gere plays a very bad boyfriend in that movie who threatens Keaton with a knife on their first night together and seemingly creates in her a fetish for danger that ultimately gets her killed. But maybe because it's another guy who actually kills her, critics, like Keaton's character, tended to focus on the erotic power of Gear's presence. Stephen Farber hornily assessed Gear in Good Bar as, like a more handsome Robert De Niro, He burns up the screen and embodies the idea of sex as pure energy. This is opposed to Pauline Kael, who had called Gear a soap opera impersonation of De Niro. Kael's dismissiveness was typical of Gear's press pre-Gigolo. Before Days of Heaven, in which Gear had his first lead role, was released, he headed to London to shoot John Schlesinger's Yanks. He didn't know how to deal with the attention of the media. On a visit to the set of Yanks, Rex Reed complained that Gear, quote, chain-smoked nervously and ran for cover whenever he saw a reporter nearby. If he's not careful, nobody will want to notice him at all. When he returned to the States, Gear sat down for an interview with Jane Lane of the Ladies' Home Journal. Lane was uninterested in her subject. He was terminally small town with a chip on his shoulder, she recalled. Frankly, I was bored, so I tried to liven it up. So she asked Gear, quote, Does it bother you that you're viewed as a sex object? Or are you gay? Gear responded, You want to see a sex object? And pulled down his zipper. According to Gear, when he dropped his pants, the reporter, quote, looked down and matter-of-factly said, oh, I've seen better, and continued with the interview. Lane had a better line. Quote, he took out his Johnson. It just petered out after that, so to speak. This story gets repeated in a lot of profiles of gear, 
and not because anyone seems concerned that he committed what would be seen today as a crime of sexual harassment. It gets repeated because every now and then, in search of an angle, a reporter raises the question of whether or not Gear is gay and uses this extreme reaction to the question as evidence that he doth protest too much. Interestingly, American Gigolo seems to have put this conversation on pause for a few years. Schrader clearly intended American Gigolo to say something about male sexuality, but it feels like the media was not ready to take up the complexity of that. What they were ready to do, and well equipped to do, was to promote Richard Gere as a sex symbol for straight women. There was apparently a void. From People magazine, April 7th, 1980, quote, Paul Newman, let's face it, is in his 50s. Robert Redford and Burt Reynolds are in their 40s. Clint Eastwood is verging on self-parody, and Pacino De Niro are too serious. So what Hollywood plainly hungers for these days is a new beefcake. Enter Richard Gere. Gere was all over the newsstand in 1980, frequently shirtless. Rolling Stone put him on the cover, sprawled out on his side, shirt unbuttoned to his waist, dangling cigarette drawing attention to his crotch, with the cover line, Richard Gere, stripped down and sexy. The American media sold him as a pinup and then switched gears to cover how he was being perceived as such by an audience of women who had been starved of the same. American Gigolo touched off a period of about five years in which the culture embraced the idea of a predatory female gaze, which objectified men. This was a cultural 180 from 1977, when looking for Mr. Goodbar not only couldn't reconcile the idea that a schoolteacher would frequent singles bars, but ultimately preached that casual sex would almost necessarily get a girl killed. Just three years later, American Gigolo star Lauren Hutton was quoted calling Richard Gere a sex pot and positioning American Gigolo as a much-needed sexual political correction, which, quote, shows how after the sexual revolution and the feminist movement, it's become acceptable for a man to use sex to change his class. Traditionally, it was the woman who did this. Now, though, the field's wide open. Men hustling women instead of exclusively women hustling men. To speak of sex work in such equal opportunity and even positive terms was to go against where much of the feminist movement actually was in 1980. The activists of Women Against Pornography would probably suggest that Hutton had internalized her own oppression in order to sell a movie and was selling something much more dangerous along with it. Remember, this was the year that Playboy was so afraid of the anti-porn wing of the feminist movement that they devoted major real estate in three of 12 issues to defending their right to exist. The last of those Playboy articles, called The New Puritans, appeared in the November issue. Its raison d'etre was the publication of the anti-pornography anthology Take Back the Night, which the unsigned editorial compared to Mein Kampf, which Gloria Steinem had already compared to Playboy, 
as well as Reefer Madness and the Extreme Regulation of Sex dramatized by George Orwell in 1984. Brilliantly using the feminists' own rhetoric against them, Playboy quoted a portion of the book in which Judith Batada, an academic researcher on and advocate against newsstand pornography, said, quote, As women get societal rewards for offering themselves up as sexual objects, we communicate and receive the message that a real woman is one who will take off her clothes at the drop of a hat, who will perform sexually, who is ready any time, who will sell or rather rent herself. We can be said to be breeding a nation of whores. Bat Ada has much more incendiary things to say about Playboy and other magazines in Take Back the Night. But this quote was particularly useful to allow Hugh Hefner, or whoever wrote this editorial, to slip into sanctimonious liberal hero mode. Quote, For 27 years, Playboy has tried to portray a healthful, robust sexuality based on equality of partners. We are companions to pleasure. We have tried to destroy the notion that sex was something only bad girls did. The Madonna whore complex crippled society for centuries. Now we find the name calling still exists in the minds of women against pornography. At a moment when a dichotomy had been set up between purveyors of sexual imagery for a male gaze and the women who wanted to put them out of business, is it a coincidence that the mainstream media seemingly launched a campaign to normalize the idea of a female sexual gaze with widespread lust for Richard Gere heralded as a sign that women were capable of casual sex interest? And in a sense wanted their own version of pornography. A year and a half later, Gear appeared on the cover of Newsweek, dressed to evoke 1950s sex symbols like James Dean or Marlon Brando in tight jeans, a white t-shirt, and black leather jacket. Quote, women are now speaking up lustily about the objects of their desire. Gear was just one of those objects, But since the Gigolo press tour, he had climbed to the top of a heap that also included Tom Selleck, William Hurt, Kurt Russell, Harrison Ford, and more, thanks to what Newsweek called a wave of romantic excitement inspired by the 1982 blockbuster, An Officer and a Gentleman. An Officer and a Gentleman is an excellent example of how radically sex in movies had changed in just a few years. Last episode, we talked about how Shampoo, a movie about sex, has only one shot that could be considered an explicit rendering of sexual activity. And this is a rather mundane image of Warren Beatty thrusting on top of a mostly hidden Julie Christie. An Officer and a Gentleman, released seven years after Shampoo, is not a movie about sex. And yet, it contains more than one sex scene in which Gear and Deborah Winger appear to be actually naked and performing intimate choreography that is both creative and, frankly, exciting. 
There's one shot in this film in which we see Winger riding gear. She has her back to us and is framed so that we can see his hand cupping a butt cheek with his fingers slipping further upwards. Director Taylor Hackford seems to cut away at the exact moment before Gear's hand would have gone where no hand had gone before in an R-rated movie. Gear, Newsweek wrote, radiated anarchic sexual energy. It was exciting because you weren't sure what he was going to do. In the end of the film, he literally sweeps Deborah Winger off her feet. It was, Newsweek said, the embodiment of an 80s ideal. In this age of easy sex and unattainable intimacy, the hero actually fell in love. Gear's triumph, and that of other hunks who women were excited to objectify, was offered as a sign that enough work had been done by feminism that women could now fantasize about submission. To quote Newsweek, Women who in the heat of the feminist movement in the 70s wouldn't discuss such matters are now demanding sexy screen idols. They frankly relish, as one woman puts it, men on the screen who make you feel like a woman. Another voice supporting this theory was Don Steele, the paramount executive behind a film we'll be talking about later this season, Flashdance. In the 60s, women made a big mistake, Steele said. We had our consciousness raised, but we forgot about the men. We were yelling, don't open the door, don't light my cigarette, let me make my own decisions. They were afraid to do anything, so they spent the 70s recuperating. Consequently, we had laid back stars in the 70s. Now they have caught up with us and are coming on again with aggression. These new stars are strong enough to stand an equal partner. Newsweek did not mention that Steele had dated Gear in 1978, before he became a big star. The media continued to sell the dream of equality between the sexes, with Richard Gere as the literal cover boy for another couple of years. His career would ebb for a bit after the Cotton Club in 1984, which means the last gasp of the first wave of consideration of Gere as the liberated woman's himbo was probably the June 1985 issue of Playgirl, which declared on its cover that Gear was the most desired man alive. As was often the case with Playgirl, the inside of the magazine featured no interview and no nude photo spread of the star. Instead, there was an essay by the great feminist film critic Molly Haskell. Haskell painted a picture of Gear as a sex object who allowed women to unlock their fantasies of having sex like men without commitment or deeper meaning. He had, she wrote, a bedroom body, the way people were once said to have bedroom eyes. It says sex for sale, and it first said it in the context of a whole new generation of sexually liberated women, two women who were buying, if not literally, at least in their heads. The point about him was that he wasn't romantic. With Gear, you wouldn't get emotionally involved. He's the seducee rather than the seducer. And the passivity, the decadence, is part of his appeal. He'd be the perfect date for an orgy. You'd slide in and out among the couplings and triplings 
without embarrassment or guilt. Incidentally, in her memoir, They Can Kill You But They Can't Eat You, Dawn Steele writes about a night when she and Gear went to the notorious swingers club Plato's Retreat, purely as observers, she claims. Anyway, for years, Gear had been held up as the icon of a new sexual empowerment. But in her Playgirl essay, Haskell used a by-then-dated term to define his appeal. She called him the embodiment of the quote-unquote zipless fuck. This phrase was coined by Erica Jong in the 1973 novel Fear of Flying, in which protagonist Isadora Wing describes it as an assignation that is, quote, absolutely pure. It is free of ulterior motives. There is no power game. The man is not taking and the woman is not giving. For the true, ultimate, zipless A1 fuck, it was necessary that you never got to know the man very well. Not incidentally, at the end of the 80s, Zhang would write Any Woman's Blues, a novel which presents itself as the unfinished manuscript by Fear of Flying's heroine Isadora, which is described by Isadora's editor as demonstrating, quote, what a dead end the so-called sexual revolution had become and how desperate so-called free women were in the last few years of our decadent epoch. So maybe Molly Haskell had to reach back more than a decade to find a reference point for the kind of liberation fantasy that Gear embodied, because more recent history didn't offer anything. That same issue of Playgirl began with a letter from the magazine's then-publisher, a middle-aged white man named Ira Ritter. In his letter, Ritter attempted to assess how far the women's movement had come in the 12 years since Playgirl had been founded, ostensibly to give women an analog to Playboy. Certainly, women today do not have the same economic clout as men, he wrote. But what is heartening is that American society now overwhelmingly encourages women to believe that they can achieve financial parity, even superiority, with no sacrifice to their femininity. This could not be said confidently 12 years ago. If women have nowhere near the same economic clout as men, then isn't the belief that they could achieve financial parity nothing but a delusion? The letter went on to suggest that this belief, in other words, magical thinking, was sign enough that there was no longer a need for activism. Quote, is the women's movement losing steam in America? Probably, if what we're talking about is a radical organized protest group. Should women be upset? Probably not. After all, the best campaigns erase their own reason for being. In other words, girls, be happy that men no longer think you're totally unfuckable if you take your own ambition seriously. Who could ask for anything more? It's not the fault of Molly Haskell, who was a freelancer and a legend, and probably had no idea that her cover story would run alongside this publisher's letter. But 
On the whole, this issue of Playgirl seems to be saying that women no longer needed to worry about fighting for equality in the streets and could focus instead on their agenda between the sheets. And that feels like an extension of what Playboy was trying to do in 1980, in terms of protecting their own interests by quelling the anti-porn feminist movement. The message from men to women seemed to be, no, you haven't achieved equality, but why not quit while we're still ahead and devote your energy to fantasizing about a fictional man who actually cares about what you want? Playboy and Playgirl, which had ostensibly been founded to give women what they weren't getting or had even felt robbed of by Playboy, were in on the same uncoordinated op. Susan Faludi would give it a name in her explosive 1991 book, Backlash. The anti-feminist backlash, Faludi wrote, has been set off not by women's achievement of full equality, but by the increased possibility that they might win it. It is a preemptive strike that stops women long before they reach the finish line. At the beginning of the decade, 70s porn icon Linda Lovelace was co-opted by anti-porn feminists to serve as the face of the movement against pornography. Now, in 1985, Richard Gere had become the cover boy of a version of sex-positive feminism, which was itself a cover for the insinuation that women didn't need feminism at all. This couldn't have been further from the truth. When we get to our episode on 1985, we'll talk about the outcry inspired by a film which depicted an adult career woman falling for a guy who turns out to be a depraved rapist slash murderer. But first, next week, 1981, the year that a generation of male directors who came of sexual age watching Lana Turner and Barbara Stanwyck torture the poor trusting saps who loved them, start remaking noirs for an R-rated age. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. 
at patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night, 